Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 149, air date July 25th, 2017. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. I'm the chairman and CEO of Cytosol, and it's a pleasure to be here. I gave a couple of points when I started, but I'm just going to jump right into this. The title of my talk is what you can see if there's a future of food, but more importantly, I'm going to talk about a revolutionary way to actually discuss some of the issues that the previous speaker addressed. You know, are GMOs safe or not? Well, you know, should we, do we need to do animal testing? Clearly there's a big uh, gap between the need to do animal testing and whether, it's, uh, whether the toxicity in animals actually matches with humans. But the reality is most of the way that research has been going on has been um, based on an old model of how pharmaceuticals were developed. And we're gonna talk about that and we're going to talk about a very different approach, and it may actually create some controversy in a healthy way. So I hope it does. Um, my associate, Dr. Dunaker, is here, because I'm going to have to run to the airport. People can follow up with him. But let me just tell you a little bit about myself. You know, I grew up in uh, two worlds. I grew up in India as a, as a young kid. Uh, India is very different. It's a country within countries. So I grew up in the India of Bombay, but I also grew up in India of a small village in deep South India. And the scenes are extremely different where there was no running water, you know, um, completely different. These are some of those scenes in India. And my grandmother was a poor uh, farmer. She worked in the fields, you know, planting rice and cotton. And she worked 16 hours a day. But, you know, my, she was also trained in traditional systems of Indian medicine. You see, in the West, we have what's called conventional medicine. But long before Western medicine existed, there also existed Eastern medicine. And it's as valid or potentially even more valid for prevention. The problem is there's a hubris in the Western world thinking that only one way is good. Western medicine really is phenomenal in my experience for crisis management after something happens, but it knows very little, uh, if anything, about prevention. But my grandmother, this is a picture of in her Sunday best, um, she had the ability to, uh, she practiced India's traditional system of medicine. And if you look at the words here in this inverse pyramid, there's a whole language which we don't have time to go through, but that notion is that the body has a certain, uh, each one of our bodies is unique. What's toxic to someone may not be toxic to someone else. What's good for someone else may not be good for anyone else. Uh, but the idea is my grandmother had the ability to read uh, someone's face. Uh, there's a diagnosis method from traditional medicine. Based on that, she could predict what's going on in the body. Now, this system of Indian medicine goes back thousands of years. You know, the original stuff was done in Tamil. I'm just showing you some scenes, uh, some pictures from the medicinal transcripts written on uh, traditional palm leaf. And there's a whole lineage. These sages that you see here weren't just wise men in saffron robes. They actually practiced, uh, they were rishis or scientists of the time. But my grandmother could observe someone's face, and based on that, she could uh, understand the different types of dysfunctions in someone's organ systems, and then she would formulate what we today would call precision medicine. But this is a woman without any degrees who I saw empirically heal people. Um, so when I came to the United States, and I, I came here when I was seven years old, went through uh, you know, four degrees at MIT, uh, my PhD is in biological engineering, started seven companies. In fact, Cytosolve is our latest company, which models molecular pathways, and I'll come back to that. But this is the way Western medicine sees life, biology, right? You have molecular pathways, genes, proteins. I think everyone in this room understands this. Um, Eastern medicine sees it like this. So my question was, could you resolve both of these different areas? 
Um, in 2007, when I finished my PhD at MIT, I had the opportunity to get a Fulbright. A Fulbright is a you know, reasonably interesting uh, scholarship where you get to go away for a year. And I went to India, and this appeared on the front page of MIT because people didn't understand why this guy with four degrees at MIT at the age of 40 wants to go back to India and study Indian medicine, and that's what I did. One of the things, the aha moment I had was the following. You see, the problem in biology and the problem in medicine is most biologists and most uh, medical doctors have no idea another field called systems theory. What I'm showing you here is a, is a watch, right? The watch is an interconnected system of parts, and what emerges is a watch. This is also a system. Anyone know what this is? No, it's the, it's the engine for the space shuttle. Millions of parts interacting together to create a thing called a rocket. Anyone know this is? This is a city, right? It's also a system. But nature has many, many systems. Now, if you took a course at MIT in controls theory, you would find out that most basic systems have five elements, input, output, transport of energy, conversion of energy, and storage of energy, or information or matter. Now this, everyone understands in the Western world. Now if you go to an intelligence system, if you take the second course at MIT and go through another 13 weeks, which I'm teaching in the next 30 seconds, you would basically understand there's a thing called control systems theory. The thermostat in this room has a goal. It has an output, which is the actual temperature. There's sensors, and there's a controller which figures out how to modulate temperature in this room through the uh, you know, transport, conversion, and storage of energy, and that's how you reach a temperature. Very much how this room works right here. And in control systems, there's nothing about perfection. You have a goal that you want to hit, and you're going around that goal until you hit it. And you're never always there. You're constantly refining it. Now go to the Indian systems of medicine. If you look at Ayurveda or Siddha, they have a th you may have heard of these words called karma. Yes? It's not a yoga term. It actually means action. The other side of karma is karma fall, which is the fruits of action. In the Indian system, they have vata, pitta, and kapha, and if you ask the average Indian Ayurveda healer, they can't really explain it. They do a lot of hand-waving. So the Western scientist looking at this basically says this is all BS, or it's snake oil, and they walk away not wanting to understand it. The, uh, and in the Eastern systems of medicine, you start with a goal, it's called a sankalpa, and you go through this process of refining yourself uh, by understanding what's going on, your, 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 your indriyas are like your sensors, your monos, your mind. The, the point I'm making here is vata, pitta, and kapha translate one-to-one -to, -one to what's called transport, conversion, and storage. These ancient Indian rishis were actually system scientists. They saw the body as an engineering system. They understood it had the forces of transport, conversion, storage, vata, pitta, kapha, and they figured out a way to manipulate food or exercise and activities to manipulate that. that so this is a very interesting paper. I considered a, 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 a decent paper, and we didn't publish this in a medical journal, nor an a, nor a alternative medicine or food journal. We published it in an engineering journal. Because engineers know that everything in nature follows the same principles. And this is a problem we have in biology in most of these fields. People don't understand systems here. So anyway, if you have a chance, you can study, uh, get this paper. But the reason I wanted to share this with you is in traditional systems of medicine, it was about giving the right medicine for the right person at the right time, right? And this is what now we call precision medicine. Well, let me just make it clear, this is not a new concept. This has existed for thousands of years, and if we want to let go of our hubris in the West and start looking at this, we can perhaps learn from this so we, we don't have to recreate the wheel. So the key part of food and medicine was it was collaborative. It wasn't just between the doctor telling someone what to do. 
It was a collaborative exercise. It was based on cooperation and fundamentally combination, which means you didn't just give one ingredient, you gave combinations of ingredients. And so, so, so my journey to what we would call precision medicine, which is really what food is in many ways in the art of eating, started with when you really look at the pharmaceutical industry. You know, uh, in the United States we have a thing called Obamacare, or which is actually Romney Care. The problem is all of these insurance care things have nothing to do with health, right? They have to do with health insurance. I think you were addressing this earlier. It's politicians getting around in a room and trying to figure out how they could collude with insurance companies to make them a lot of money. It has nothing to do with health. And, and the reason it has nothing to do with health is if you look at this diagram, when we create medicine in the pharmaceutical world, it's about finding a single ingredient, a typically a synthetic compound, and then you go through this process of where you kill a bunch of cells or whatever in a test tube, then you go kill a bunch of animals in to toxicology, and at the end of it, you apply for an FDA allowance, and then uh, if that's allowed, then you go to phase one, phase two, phase three. Well, that process is around three to five billion dollars, 13 years. And remember, what comes out of it, if you file the patent at the beginning of it, and let's say it takes 15 years, you only have five years for your patent life, so the pharma guys are charging ridiculous money for their products because they gotta reap their investment. And most of these drugs have lots and lots of side effects. They were, they were done for someone in Thailand. They weren't really tested for different genetic types, right? So it's a whole, in my opinion, the whole thing is flawed. And anyone who doesn't think it's flawed should have their head checked in many ways because something is flawed. And we need to really look at this and understand what it is. Uh, in med, from an engineering standpoint, you know, I have three degrees in MIT in engineering. Uh, when you look at this, this is a way to build airplanes in the old days. You threw a pilot in, and if he blew up, you said, oh, Jesus, he blew up. And if he succeeded, then you very cleverly explain mechanisms. And that's what we do in biology. We shoot a bunch of stuff out there, and a duck falls out of the sky which is something we think works, and then we rationalize the mechanisms and we write amazing papers thinking how smart we are. But it doesn't start with a priori understanding of mechanisms. And in many ways, the problem with biology is the academic centers of biology uh, is like the blind men looking at the elephant. Let's say the elephant represents cancer, right? It, look, let's all be honest. In academia, there's no incentive to figure out what the elephant is. You get Nobel Prizes, you get awards if you figure out how two proteins interact or how one little component works and you can build your entire 10-year uh, life based on one thing. People do not collaborate. And the result of this is you end up with something like this, if they did collaborate. And I don't mean to be facetious, but this is what it is. And this is because there's no incentive to collaborate. And like in business, there's a specialization, there's lack of, uh, lack of integration. And the, these are the results, at least in the United States. I don't know the numbers here, but you know, right now, uh, healthcare is around 17% of GDP. And I shouldn't really say healthcare, I should call it the really costs of healthcare. Um, and everyone talks about defense, but this is a reality of the nonsensical way that we approach research. And it's an engine that keeps moving. And in fact, even more interesting is when you look at this diagram, year over year, pharma companies spend every day more and more money, 30% more increases in R&D. Now you would think you'd spend more money in any business, you'd shut this down, right? You're getting less and less new drugs found. So clearly there's something wrong, and I felt there was a need for a revolution. A little bit more about me, you know, when I was a, I've been involved in medical research since I was a 14-year-old kid, believe it or not. I was one of those kids who was an overachiever by the time I came to the United States when I was seven. By 14, I'd finished up calculus, went off to NYU in a special program, studied computer science, 
It was an intensive program, and I started working full-time at Rutgers Medical School while I was going to high school as a 14-year-old kid and started doing medical research and looking at why babies were dying in their sleep. This is in 1978. We had some of the best data of baby sleep patterns, and what you would now call big data, we were doing correlation. But while I was there, I, I had the opportunity to learn how to build large-scale collaborative systems, and how do you bring people together to solve problems. One of them was this. Everyone in this room over the age of 40 may remember the old secretary, remember it? The secretary who had a desktop, she had the inbox, outbox. Everyone remember this? Everyone's very quiet here. Uh, uh, typewriter, she'd write a thing called a memo, to, from, subject, carbon paper, it was literally carbon paper. So if you were going to do a grant application, you'd put someone's name on, you'd attach it and you'd forward it around. And uh, this was put into these envelopes and this was uh, by the way, anyone under the age of 40, you may not have seen this, but this was how information got communicated in large organizations. Well, I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic version. As a 14-year-old kid, I wrote 50,000 lines of code, converted that entire system, and I called it email. Uh, that's a picture of me, 1980, and this is the first US copyright for email. What's interesting was that in those days, the politicians who frankly don't know how to, the reason you talked about it, they shouldn't be involved in politics. We need everyday people involved in politics because it's a big loss to take a, to think that you can teach a, a politician what chemistry is. And that was not the foundation of most governments. It was supposed to be, we were supposed to be involved as citizens. But in, 1970, in 1980s, the politicians did not understand what software was. They thought software was sheet music, and the only way to protect software was through copyright. And that's what I did as a 17-year-old kid. On August 30th, 1982, I was issued the first US copyright for email, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. And I'll come back to this. There, there it is. But the reason I'm sharing this with you is if we're going to address food and nutrition, we have to address uh, or recognize there's a very important word here. It was called system. We have to look at the things in a systems approach, because that's what email is. Email is not the simple exchange of text messages. Messages is that entire system, and that's me when I was 14. <laughs> Let me get back to this. So when I went off to MIT, I was really interested in medicine, because I built this email system. I understood large-scale systems. The problem was I found out even an institution like MIT treated the body as parts, right? So you study a part. And in fact, all of the way we approach food and nutrition and health is if you have a problem, you get triaged to multiple people. So you walk in with a headache and you may end up seeing three different specialists. This was valuable for wartime medicine. If you go look at the history of medicine, it came when Florence Nightingale in the 1800s had identified the soldiers in the Crimean War were dying not on the field, but because when they came into the hospital. So she created the modern healthcare system. She wasn't just a nurse, she was a member of the Royal Society of Statistics. She was a brilliant woman, but the modern healthcare system is not based on food and nutrition. It's based on putting a soldier back on the field. Let's remember that, okay? So um, in, in 2003, if people remember, the Human Genome Project starts, and it goes into this in the following way. It said, what is the difference between a human being and a worm, right? And the idea was, we said, well, a worm we knew had about 20,000 genes, so we must have more parts. Right? We're so much more complicated, we must have more parts, which were genes. So if you look at this diagram, it, the, the original thought was we had, if you can't see this, we had 100,000 genes. That was the estimate in the mid-1990s. Well, look at what happens by the time the Genome Project ends, it turns out we have about 20,000 parts. Pretty wild, right? 
So what genes are, the new definition, they're more like a, a fixed number of piano keys on a keyboard, but there's infinite songs we can play. And then those songs, the hands on this piano key of nature, are what we eat, what we, uh, the activities we do, and the environment we live in. These can turn off and turn off genes. So this is a very different radical view of biology, and this led to a field called systems biology. And systems biology said if you're gonna address the whole, you can't, it's not just the genes, it's all the different molecular pathways and interactions. So I came back to MIT in 2003, I built six different companies, my advisor said, Shiva, come back, you gotta finish your PhD. I'd left in the middle of it to start another company on email. And he said, look, there's this new field called systems biology. You can start using your uh, great background in building large scale systems like email to fusing it in with the advances in biology. So one of the things that was occurring was the National Science Foundation said, could you mathematically model the whole human cell? Because you know, a lot of what we eat and supplements and food, it's all hearsay. No one really knows what's going on in the refinery. So the idea was if you could model the molecular pathways in the cell, you could start getting a better idea, or for that matter, any type of biological system. At MIT in 2003, the, the people were getting out of this field, people could maybe model uh, maybe 20 or 30 molecular pathways, right, kinetic equations. Beyond that, it gets too complicated, and then the computer science people were coming into the field. Why? Because they were just concerned about just throwing algorithms. So what we have today is, uh, bioinformatics is largely a field of big data. It's not about understanding mechanisms because people didn't want to solve the large-scale mechanism problem. So that's the challenge I took on. On the left side here, just a level set, that's what a biological pathway is, right? There's systems and molecules interacting. So if you take uh, something like cancer or pancreatic cancer or something like diabetes or some uh, inflammation, thousands of papers written in the literature, right? Thousands or, or GMOs. Hundreds of papers written on there. If you read any of those papers, they're basically wet lab or uh, in vivo or in vitro experiments that have been done. And if you read them carefully, they evoke some understanding of one of these pathways. Everyone agree? Now, what was happening was, starting in 2003, these pathways were starting to become models because we were able to model small uh, systems. The issue then becomes, could you connect systems of systems of models together in a distributed fashion, because if you could do that, then you could do large-scale mechanisms. And that's the task I took on. The blue circle here represents abstractly the cell or some biological function. The pathways represent individual pieces, like imagine the blind men working on pieces. But imagine if you could cull that knowledge together, convert it into models, and, and create a system that could orchestrate all of them. What this would allow you to do, let's say everyone in this room was owning pieces of some mechanism, each one of you could work in a decentralized way, and Cytosol could connect it together. So that was what came out of my PhD work. We published tons of papers on it between 2007 to 12, and we spun it out as a company thereafter. And what I want, and this is one of the first uh, proofs of example that we did was this is a very comp, this is considered a complex molecular pathway. It's been modeled. We took this pathway, we broke it up into four sub-examples, sub-components. And then Cytosol automatically, without having to manually connect them together, came up with the same answers as you would have to do manually. So what that meant is we could handle components of subsystems and compute the same solution as you would get monolithically. So what we felt was for the food and medicine, nutraceutical field, we could completely offer something very radical, meaning we could look at what's going on in the, in the clinical research, 
we can look at the papers and we can literally model <coughs> complex systems and use that in silico model to test the validity of what's going on uh, in terms of computation. Now, yes, is this perfect? No. But you know what? It's far better than the shooting stuff out there. And this is the way we build airplanes today, right? We don't simply throw a pilot in. We do everything on the computer. The problem is biologists thought this was too complicated. You couldn't do it in, in food or medicine or nutrition. That's what, that's what we've done. So we have a methodology now. We can take any problem in the world, um, any biological function, and we could review the literature. So that's the top of the funnel. From that, we extract out the mechanisms evoked in that literature. We take those mechanisms. If the models exist, we use them. If not, we convert them. And we put together systems of models which Cytosol computes. The cool thing about this is this is done in a collaboratory. So if everyone in this room was working on a certain aspect of the problem, you guys would be the research community. On the bottom right are the papers that are being created. Cytosol can take those, convert them to models, and we can re-offer them back to the community. So in this iterative model, these models get refined. It also keeps everyone honest. Because right now in science, if one group of people want to push a certain narrative that you know, this phenomenon is because of this, you know, some guys on the West Coast because they get their funding for that, and some guys on the East Coast want to do something else. You, you, none of these people are kept in check. And if there's some young postdoc at a state university which has made amazing research, his light never comes out. And we have this ability to sort of break down those barriers. We today work with many different companies. This is not theory anymore. We've been doing this now for 14 years. Uh, pharma companies, functional food companies, uh, believe it or not, universities actually pay us money because we can do the work of, of 40 graduate students. The technology is being used in many, many areas, from systems modeling to combination therapy. Uh, I'm going to show you some examples, and I'm going to also focus on nutrition, too. Let me get start with one very powerful example to show we're able to take a very complex phenomenon. Remember, we have three steps. First, we understand the literature. We extract the pathways. We create an architecture of that pathway and then we take the components, we build the models and those models can be used for something. So I'm going to show you one part of that. I was giving a talk uh, that Michael Milken had held with 25 of the leading neuroscientists in the world and one of the big conclusions that's emerging is that most of the neurovascular diseases, Al Alzheimer's, ALS, are not because of something that suddenly took place but it may occur 25 years before of destruction to the blood-brain barrier. What you're seeing here is a lateral view of the blood-brain barrier, and this is a cross-sectional view. The parasites are the valves that surround the endothelial that allow blood flow in and out of the brain. And what we did was we literally used cytosol when we, first of all, understood uh, with the people at USC all the mechanisms involved in the endothelial, which is a, you know the stuff on the artery, everything in the parasites, and everything in the astrocytes. But what we did was we proposed for the first time a computational systems architecture, an engineering architecture of neurovascular disease. And to simply put, in the first layer we, we identified all the mechanisms, in the second layer the communications, and we took every known neurovascular disease, and we found was these diseases aren't individual diseases. Western medicine likes to silo diseases, so they can create drugs for each silo. The reality is many of those diseases crosstalk, and they have to do with multiple different pathways. So this, when we submitted this paper, half of the reviews at Nature thought we were crazy, and the other half loved it. We had to write back a 20-page review, and it got published in Nature. So we went into a field where we are not the experts, and we made a significant contribution. Let me give you another example, which you may appreciate. Everyone is familiar with nitric oxide, yes? Viagra, right? 
the base of a nitric oxide got created? Well, what you're seeing is you're seeing an artery. The arrows rep represent blood flow through that artery. When blood flows through the artery, um, it releases NO. So Andrew Koo, one of the guys in our lab at MIT, had meticulously, he was working between MIT and Brigham at Harvard, and he had figured out how to set up the wet lab experiment where he could send blood flow uh, and, and it would give different levels of NO. What it turns out is on the surface of the artery, those hexagonal mosaic that you see, is a structure called a glycocalyx. So when blood flows, the glycocalyx moves and it somehow releases nitric oxide. Now if you go to the literature, again like the blind man, you'll see all these different narratives or mechanisms of how nitric oxide releases. If you try to mash all of these mechanisms together to model it, it's intractable. So what we said was let's keep them as individual components, like engineering components. Each one was modeled and validated and Cytosol put it together. What I'm going to share with you is something quite impressive. This is Cytosol's prediction. This is not curve fitting. It's the actual mechanistic predictions of uh, one of the indicators of NO flow, of nitric oxide. And watch this, this is a wet lab experiment. This is not a curve fit. So this is the model, that's the reality. And same here. So what this shows is that you can, in fact, model very complex behavior if you take an engineering systems approach. This is not something that's intractable. And in fact, this was published in cells by a physical journal, not a, um, you know, a, a reasonably uh, you know, a good journal. The next one I want to show you that relates to our, us is we've talked about toxicity. I was giving a talk at um, Walter Reed Medical Hospital and soldiers in the military are taking many different foods and nutritional supplements for enhancement. They take, for example, bitter orange, which is synephrine, right? The bark of yohimbi, yohimbi tree, which is, uh, uh, has potentially methyl testosterone, um, creatine, caffeine, what's the other? Arginine. So soldiers are, I mean, it's over the dispensary. The issue is what is the toxicity of this, right? Because it's five different supplements. Um, the, the, uh, they had just funded the USP, which is US Pharmacopoeia, to do this analysis. And I was asked to uh, be on the expert council to see what, what they were doing. And the way these guys were doing it, in my view, was very, very archaic, because they were essentially looking at adverse reaction reports and then doing correlation. So I recused myself and I said, look, we got a better way to do this. And we said, we'll show you. So what we did was we used a nitric oxide model. We took arginine and caffeine with different ADMA as a measure of hypertension. And we literally did the modeling. So what you see here on the bottom is there, the, there are four population groups. The purple group meaning people of high hypertension. And the blue is people of low hypertension. Different levels of arginine. And what you see clearly in this is that as you give arginine, Right? It stabilizes for normal people, but for hypertensive people, you actually help. That's a purple line. Everyone see that? So, hyper, right? so that, that's good. The next thing that you see here is when you give caffeine, that caffeine actually depresses NO. Right? One cup of coffee is the first part. The last one is like 10 cups of coffee, which is one of the supplements that are out on the market. Now when you combine them, you'll see something fascinating. And again, this is done all through in silico. On the left side, you see one cup of coffee in different levels of, of uh, what I call uh, uh, arginine here. And you see people are pretty good. Even with the blue line, high hypertension, they can still get about 70%. But when you take this supplement, no matter how much arginine you give, the people at low hypertension, I mean high hypertension, never get back up to normal. So we were able to use in silico modeling to put bounds 
on from a food and nutrition standpoint because the under, we understand the mechanisms. And this was actually became a monograph for a model-based approach to predict safety of multi-ingredient uh, dietary supplements. Right, so we can use mathematical modeling, we can use mechanisms, because you can't really do this any other way. To your point, we don't know what's going on in an animal toxicity in us, right? So you have to go down to mechanisms. Are we perfect? I don't know, but we've created the framework that as research comes out, we can absorb it and make it better and better and better. We can refine it. Everyone clear on this? This is a framework. Let me show you another example, multi-combination therapies. This paper came out in Nature about two years ago saying, if we're gonna solve cancer, we're gonna, we can't just give a single drug, because it could be very toxic, we have to use combination therapy. The fascinating thing was this was written by some of the leaders in here. Um, we, Cytosol, if you can see it, was the only one cited in there as having a way to do combination uh, understanding in silico. So we raised about a million bucks as a company, and we said, why aren't we using this? And um, in India, just giving you the analogy, you know, you'll see these villagers mixing different supplements and foods, and I'm sure in China too, right, in any traditional uh, medicines. And a, an interesting example is about 15 years ago, a ton of research came out talking about curcumin. Everyone know what curcumin is? Obviously everyone in this room is, which is the active ingredient in turmeric. Turmeric is one of the active uh, herbs in curry. Curry is a mixture of herbs. If you go to one village, they'll use different, uh, you know, uh, combinations and my grandmother's village would. But all of Asia, India, China, Indonesia, if you take that entire area, it turns out that um, the number one cause of death in that region is liver cancer, right? America's heart disease. But Indians get one third less liver cancer and it's been epidemiologically correlated to the high consumption of curcumin. So what we did was we mined those 6,000 papers and what we were seeing here is all the mechanisms, the outer circle is the cell wall, the inner circle is a nuclear worm. We're looking at all the places curcumin interacts relative to inflammation. And we mathematically modeled this so we could uh, vary the levels of curcumin. And then we looked at res uh, resveratrol. Everyone know that, red grapes? Because you go to these nutritional supplement stores, people will throw resveratrol in and curcumin and you ask them, how did you come up with those combinations? It's all hand-waving. So we did the same, we modeled resveratrol. Then we said, what happens when you do it in combination? And this is what we discovered. So in the first row there, the last column there, everyone see that, the 0.15? That's a, that's a high level of inflammation based on the literature, 0.15 micromolar. We're looking at one of the cytokines of inflammation. No curcumin, no resveratrol, you have high inflammation, that's a control. Just curcumin, you see it drops down to 0.05. Just resveratrol, it drops down to 0.06. But this is what's cool when you get synergy. I've reduced the amount of curcumin by 40%, the amount of resveratrol by 60%, but you see the level of inflammation drops by another 200%. So everyone hand waves about this, but we can actually understand this. And behind this is all the chemistry, right? All the, is it perfect? No, there could be certain equations missing, but if something is wrong here, it's not a black box of statistical mess. We can actually go and understand mechanisms here. We took the same methodology and we started, by the way, we've applied it to looking at inflammation. What happens if you, everyone familiar with Advil or ibuprofen here in Canada? Well, typically you have to take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen to have some effect. We said, could we reduce the dosage of ibuprofen to 40 milligrams? And what happens if you mix in ginger? These are foods, right? And chocolate, right? And cannabis. And we started, and we figured out combinations that may be able to do that in silico. And that's what we're able to do. Similarly, we've looked at 
all different types of mushroom varieties. The point is we can start getting a handle on this in silico that you cannot do by killing enough animals. Uh, I'll give you one example that pet food. There is a very interesting woman who started a pet food company. She studied traditional medicine. In fact, this company is called Solid Gold. She had found out a formulation of foods that when you give it to pets, their hair was getting stronger, the coat was getting better, and no one understood why. So we literally uh, modeled all the digestion pathways and the coat appearance pathways, the cornified envelope. We took their products, which included dulse and flaxseed, and we were actually able to identify what, which works. So they had about, I think, 10 ingredients, right? We identified there were really four ingredients that were synergistically valuable. The other two, frankly, had no value at all, or the other set. Um, so, so the net of it is, um, there are many, many ways that you can use this from the pancreatic cancer development. What we ended up doing, by the way, was we used this technology to look at all the 262 drugs for cancer. We modeled the molecular mechanism of, of apoptosis, the molecular mechanisms of cell proliferation, and we literally went through this process of 30, 10 million combinations. We actually discovered a combination in silico that did better than gemcitabine. Not only that, then we applied for an FDA allowance. And lo and behold, three months into it, we got a call from the FDA saying, you know, what you guys are doing is what Janet Woodcox of the FDA wants to do in the 23rd century. Our allowance was approved. And then we have spun that technology out with MD Anderson, where we're now using that platform to start looking at all different kinds of combination therapies. So what I'm trying to share with you is, this is how you know we should be doing stuff. It shouldn't be sort of hand-waving. We have this very powerful approach. And I want to end with this last example, and then move on to some of the political consequences, which I think are important to address. Um, uh, this was a company that works on a horrible disease called hereditary angioedema, a rare disease. Um, it works by the metabolism of a protein called bradykinin. The left side is us modeling that with a target that they had found in the mouse. The problem is they weren't sure if their data in the mouse was correct. And this is what happens in science. People do animal data, but you're really not sure, right? You don't really know why things are working, so we actually, from the known papers, modeled this disease as best we could, and you see that curve that we have, that's what Cytosol predicted. After we did this, they gave us their mouse data. Everyone see that? So this was quite uh, dramatic, how the model predicted the mouse, and they were very kind enough to put out this press release which said, Alan Island's in vivo study confirmed Cytosol's in silico predictions. Again, I want to emphasize to you, you know, Cytosol in many ways is as revolutionary as email. Um, I want to talk about GMOs. I'm probably going to have a very different um, approach about this. This appeared on the front page of my alma mater, MIT, in 2014. I had not studied GMOs, and I saw this, and it was very curious. In, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, this logo, buy fresh, typically is buy fresh, buy local. It's done by the organic people to support local foods. So MIT, uh, by the way, I've been on the front page of this magazine before for some other stuff, so I respect it. Um, but this is one of the most eminent technology magazines. It's a buy fresh, buy GMO. And the article says, you know, all the poor people in the world, Africans and Indians need GMOs, blah, 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 which I verified the numbers are not true. Okay, I talked to one of the leading people in India who's involved in the agricultural department. Most of the shortages are because people are not using proper technologies. They're not have proper distribution, and it doesn't have to do with GMOs, but this was basically a neo-missionary article. Let's go help the darkies. 
excuse me, double quote, okay? That's what it was. Let's go help these people in Africa and India who need our help. But fundamentally, there is no justification why you need it. Now, it gets even more interesting. I didn't want to get involved in whether GMOs positive or negative, but I knew there was this debate, pro and non-GMO. So I started researching this, and I wanted to take a middle ground. Fundamentally, when a GMO is put out, it's based on this policy of assuming that the non-GMO is equivalent to the GMO. And where does this come from in the United States? It's very much like saying David Banner is no different than the Hulk. Um, and as you unravel this, you find out in 1976 there was a guideline that was created, passed by Gerald Ford for medical devices. So what turns out is, let's say I have a stethoscope here that I created, it took me seven years to get through the FDA, okay? Which means, you know, I had to innovate it, I had to get it approved, etc. And let's say tomorrow all I did was change that, let's say the stethoscope's color was white to black. The old, prior to this, you'd have to go through the same approvals, because all I did was one itsy weeny teeny weeny little change. So this law basically said, uh, of substantial equivalence, if I as a manufacturer could say, you know what, these are substantially equivalent, then I could get it fast-tracked. Everyone tracking me? This is for medical devices. And when it came to GMOs, Obama had appointed a guy called Michael Taylor, who's a former head of science policy at, at Monsanto, to be the deputy director of food at the FDA. All right? So what do they use? They said, oh, okay, this is also a device, a little, t you know, I'm using the tomato, the non-GMO tomato. How do we, we want to fast track this. It's only an itsy weeny teeny weeny change we've done to one little gene. Well, it should be fast tracked, so can you prove substantial equivalence? Now, if you read the guidelines, it says the manufacturer should clearly identify the technological characteristics of each device individually. What that means is I, as a manufacturer, you and I started, let's say, GMO Blueberry Company, we decide what the characteristics are. There's no independent characteristics decided by any independent agency. We, in our own labs, go prove, let's say, the water content, the color, whatever we decide are equal to the non-GMO or GMO variety, and then we simply tell the FDA we did it, and the FDA issues a safety consultation letter. There is no independent validation done. Let me repeat that. It's all self-reporting. Right, so we're making genetic changes. When we do it in drug development, it takes 15 years, right? We have to go through clinical trials, but when it comes to food, we're able to just put it out there by self-reporting. And something didn't seem to make sense with this. So we took soybeans, and we ran the same process through this amazing technology that I just shared with you. So 97% of the soybeans in the United States are genetically engineered. And we, it's hard to see there, but we went through 6,000, we actually went through what, 11,250 11, papers, which, which, which evoked 6,837 lab experiments in 184 countries, uh, sorry, 184 institutions in 23 countries. So we didn't just take the blind man approach, we took everything. And what we wanted to find was what's really going on. And all plants and fungi, including the bacteria in our gut, have the C1 metabolism pathway. C1 metabolism consists of three engineering subsystems, methionine biosynthesis, methylation, and formaldehyde detoxification. The net of it is all plants in their metabolic C1 carbon sequestration process do produce formaldehyde and they do clean it up with glutathione, right? So there's this nice balance. But if you look at that system, that system is related, is not an isolated system, it's related to the shikimic acid pathway, bunch of other subsystems. 
So we took this subsystem in paper one, we, we did the bioinformatics, we published that. In paper two, we modeled it. And then we said, what happens when plants undergo oxidative stress? Pollution, droughts. It turns out plants actually will uh, deplete their glutathione temporarily and formaldehyde levels will accumulate. But then, you know, in nature, it doesn't last forever. It, they, they sort of modulate themselves back. Then we looked at the research and we find out what happens when you genetically modify soy. We found, at least in the known literature today, four or five major variables are perturbed. When we plug that in, and we did this over a series of papers, we found out two very important characteristics that were never considered in, in evaluating this. The level of formaldehyde, which is hard to measure, but glutathione isn't. So we went through this process of all these papers, and we found was in non-GMO formaldehyde is created, but it's evanescently created, and it doesn't accumulate. But in GMOs, our models predicted that it does. More importantly, we also found that glutathione levels, the reason it does was drop significantly. When we did this, we published it. Uh, the head of the horticulture department at um, University of Florida called us a fraud. We didn't know what we were doing, uh, blah, 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 okay? And in the midst of his attacks, this guy said that I have nothing to do with Monsanto, I'm an independent scientist. A FOIA was issued on the University of Florida, 4,000 emails came out with him receiving to be their spokesman. Okay? So I have a little bit of different approach to this, you know, with all due respect. What we since then did was we wanted to find out was, did our models evoke reality? So what we found here, you can see, is we, we, were, we were very fortunate, a group in Leeds, several years before it actually grown soy in the greenhouse. And if you look at that first column, organic, 9.9 .9 levels of the glutathione. And the last one, transgenic, with Roundup Ready, was 3.7. Ours predicted 9.7, 3.9. The cool thing is we know why. And what we're finding is that when the genetic modification takes place, that it actually significantly, the, the plant is in allostasis mode, this is our view, that it's in a different operating mode from an engineering standpoint. So it has a lesser level of glutathione, and this is why we believe many of these thieves are coated with neonicotinoids, and we can come back to that. So I, I frankly believe the safety assessment standards, before we can say they're safe or not safe, there are no independent safety assessment standards. And if anyone can show me, we, we can do it, but there are none. It's all self-reporting. And, and to get to the politics of this, you know, we know that academics have been engaged in this. They have been paid off, and we as an industry should address this. Where are the, uh, are there conflicts of interest or not? And you can read about it at Professor Harvard. Literally was, as I understood, was cutting and pasting an article that Monsanto had sent him. Okay? Um, now, in closing, what I want to let you know is that we, I think the previous speaker talked about it, we are in a very, very important industry. You know, if food is the number one cause of cancer in most illnesses, well, how can we have politicians who know nothing about chemistry, nothing about food, even being politicians? You know, in the United States, Donald Trump is saying we need to drain the swamp. And I tend to agree with him, because we have a situation now where the world is heading into the 21st century, and is it appropriate that we have people in governance who have no understanding of science? And why are we, as a little nerds, not participating in government? Does that make any sense? Does it? It doesn't make sense, right? We should be participating as scientists, as engineers, as chemists in governance. We cannot offload it to some guy who looks good and is a celebrity. These people know nothing. And that's why this is going on. This book, this uh, movie, if you haven't had a chance to see it, you should see it. It's about another interesting example.
Remember when the 2009 economic collapse took place? This professor at uh, Columbia uh, wrote a beautiful paper called The Stability of the Icelandic Economy. Two months later, the entire Icelandic economy collapses. He forgot to tell people he was being paid by the Board of Governors of Iceland. He still has a job there. If this happened to a poor blue-collar person, they'd be in jail. Where is the accountability in academia? I'll give you another example. You, you alluded to this. For 50 years, we said smoking was good for you. Scientists and industry collaborated. This book came out, one of my uh, mentors, uh, Noam Chomsky, told me about this book. It's called The Golden Holocaust, which talks about this collusion. So are we doing science or are we doing something else? And then obviously people know the story of Galileo. Okay, Clear evidence, the sun is the center of the solar system. Only in 1992 did the Catholic Church say, oops, we made a mistake, sorry. But this is the truth. And where are we heading? And you know, in the United States, Eisenhower, uh, the last speech he gave in 1961, he called it the military-industrial-academic complex. In fact, the word academic was removed because the president of MIT, I believe, was his advisor, and then he removed that, but Fulbright used the word military-industrial-academic complex. And we as scientists need to wake up to this. We can't just be little, you know, focused on our little lab desk without understanding the politics here. And before Eisenhower left, he talked about this. And my view is that we, if we're gonna really do food and nutrition, we need to get back to collaboration, cooperation, and combination. We need to start using technologies. We need to understand chemistry. We need to become educated. We as a company now, we want to, Cytosol is going to become a company of zero employees. It's an ecosystem. It's like an Uber. And we are spinning out companies now, which people can take advantage of this. Um, and uh, one of the things we're doing is we're about to make this thing public like a Google using this technology. It's called Achi. Achi means grandmother in Indian. And so it's a wisdom of wisdom. So we're taking, we've now taken 200,000 products, understood the chemistry of those products, we're taking different major molecular pathway models running, and we're gonna make this accessible to the public. So if you're in a store, hey, can this help me in this way? Are we perfect? No, but we are doing much better than simply today people go on Google and they type in, is green tea good for me? They get contradictory answers. And layered into this product, what we're planning on doing is, it's a little bit hard to see, but we can also, you can look at drugs, what they work, and you can look at the actual data, but also we're gonna layer in some of the Indian traditional systems of body typing. So if this formulation is good for you, or you, or you, so we're gonna mix East and West. So the net of what I wanna share is that uh, I think there's a huge, bold future in the 21st century you know, for all of this, but it's not only a science thing, but it's also a political issue. It's not just science, it's, and it's also politics, you know, and, and we have to really, we have an opportunity as scientists to really, I don't want to say become politicians, but become active citizens. So in closing, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to do this, and I hope uh, I've inspired you in some way to get out of the lab and also do other things. Thank you.